When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome in once again to the QB11 show. I am Doug Scott, joined as always by QB11 himself. Andrew, how are you? I'm doing well, Doug. How's your Sunday going? It's going good. Big win yesterday, so that started off the weekend on the right track. Uh, Getting this done, then I'm going to go watch the latest episode of House of the Dragon. I know you've seen it. No spoilers. Uh, So it's going to be a good evening and then uh, hit the bed, hit the week and start it all over again. Yeah, yeah, I think after this, I'm going to go watch the uh, Wisconsin Athletic Director's press conference and kind of see what they're talking about over there. Yeah, a couple of firings today. Wisconsin firing um, their head coach, Paul Christ, and and then um, uh, obviously Colorado parting ways with Carl Durrell as well. So I think that's, what, five coaches now fired after five weeks? Uh, Let me think here. So Georgia Tech, Nebraska. I mean, Auburn basically has fired them, but they haven't actually finished it off yet. Um, Arizona State, Colorado, Wisconsin. So that's five. Yeah. That's crazy. Five power five in the first five weeks. Yep. That's uh, that's the new age of modern college football. Well, let's. uh, you want to jump into the Stanford game? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So obviously the Oregon Ducks pulled out a home victory, 45 to 27 over Stanford in a game that I really don't think anybody watching would think was as close as the final score indicated. Um, You know, 31 to three at the half. And I think the score was uh, 45 to 45 to 17 after after the third quarter and shout played and everybody went home and uh, the Ducks kind of ran out the clock for 15 minutes and. Stanford got a couple more, couple more scoring opportunities there, but uh, a big win for the Ducks. It, to me, just kind of first impressions. Um, you know, one of the things that struck out to me is I thought the offense was very similar to last week against Washington State in that it really could move the ball at will all game long. Up, uh, you know, against Stanford, they ended up with 515 yards, which is about 100 less than went last week. But there was obviously extended garbage time in this game that that kept that yardage total way down, which you know, probably would have pushed over 600 again. But again, you know, kind of shooting themselves in the foot, you know, in the first half particularly, uh, you know, with th- this time not so much missed red zone opportunities as more of penalties, right? Um, you know, some several false starts, a snap infraction, some holding calls, um, you know, illegal man downfield wiped a touchdown away. And so just kind of like self-inflicted wounds kept the score you know, kind of artificially low early. And then, you know, that mid second quarter to the end of the second quarter, I mean, the Ducks just put up like a, a barrage of points and, and it was game over at halftime. Yeah. I think 515 yards of offense when considering that you had a 14 penalties for 135 yards in this game uh, is a very good performance. There was a few times where we beat ourselves with penalties and took ourselves out of a rhythm uh, or took ourselves out of scoring opportunities in the red zone or, or otherwise. Um, really, for an offense that stays in front of the chain so well, last night was a really poor discipline performance. Um, and hopefully this penalty trend stops here because um, it's going to be something that will bite you against better teams down the road. You know, so one of the observations I had, and I, I'm curious to see if you agree with me or if you think I'm just way off base on this one, um, but it seemed to me like in parts of that kind of middle of the first half, it felt like like we were trying to roll out just some different formations and different things, you know, that we hadn't done before. I hadn't seen on tape. I think we I, we, I saw 21 personnel package that we had out there a little bit. And it just felt to me like, are we just trying to experiment with things? Are we trying to like try some different things with our offense? Because you know the score, the score is not that lopsided right now. It's ten zero, and our running attack is. I mean, they can't stop. They could not stop our running game. We went for three hundred fifty, three hundred fifty one yards on the ground. 
Uh, and, it, and again, it probably could have been 400 easily. I mean, we, we went, we dropped back to pass more than we ran or almost as many times as we ran the ball in, in a game where we averaged nine and a half yards per carry. Did you, did you see some of that too? Or do you think I'm crazy? No, I, I think that's true. I think every week, and especially against an opponent that you just outmatch in the way that Oregon outmatched Stanford on Saturday, like the staff is going to put things on film for future opponents to prepare for. Um, in a lot of ways, like we did it with a punt formation. We, we, we showed a new punt formation in the second half of the game, and now that's something that Arizona is going to have to devote valuable film study and time on the practice field to making sure that they align correctly against going into next week. So that, that there's a lot of advantages, little micro advantages that you can gain situationally by showing things, showing new personnel groups, showing a new wrinkle off of a previous formation or play that you've already executed. Um, and I think that's just kind of the continuation of what we've seen all season. One of the troubles I have in breaking down a game like this is like it just was such a mismatch, you know, particularly on, you know, Oregon's offenses versus Stanford's defense, but even on the other side of the ball a little bit as well. So it's hard to like say, oh, you know, Oregon did this well, Stanford did this well. I mean, Oregon was just a, a much better team, a much more talented team, you know, with better players that were available and who executed better and, and they dominated the game. So it's like it's hard to break down and say, oh, this happened or that happened. Well, yeah, they lined up and they won because they were better. Uh, I mean, it's kind of silly to say that, but it, it, it seems true. I mean, I mean, obviously, the 351 yards on the ground, nine and a half yards per carry. Um, you know, Bucky had, I think, 97 yards, which is, I think, his most of the year, but he did that on only, uh, you know, 10 carries. And then Noah had 11 carries for 66. So, yeah, that's the thing here is that, like, the. The the eighty yard Bo Nix touchdown run is not artificially inflating the yards per carry number because at halftime, prior to any Bo Nix rushing yardage, Oregon already Oregon was averaging eleven point six yards per carry at the half. So like, th- it was just a dominant performance. We were just chunking them in a multitude of ways. It was interesting because the passing game was not clicking, and and in the past, we've seen Oregon teams when they aren't playing. When, when, when one half of the offense or one phase is not executing at its optimal efficiency and you have a sloppy performance with a ton of ter- like a ton of penalties, we've lost. And here we are at halftime of a game against a conference opponent that beat us a year ago in one of those sloppy performances where we couldn't throw the ball and we're up 31 to three. Like we absolutely dominated the middle eight of this game and Despite the fact that it was kind of a somewhat sloppy performance through the air at times, I think we were I think Bo was getting a little impatient trying to force a few things downfield. Um, we were still humming to the tune of 515 yards and just insane efficiency on the ground. So um, really, really pleased with this performance in terms of what it means uh, for Oregon as a team to be able to win against teams that they're better than, despite not really. We Oregon was not playing like a juggernaut, and we still looked like one against Stanford. Um, and that that kind of just goes to to the Oregon versus Oregon complex that that Dan Lanning is in, installing in this team, where Stanford isn't a good enough team to measure against us. So we need to measure ourselves against ourselves, and our execution and our penalties are were not acceptable, and they won't pass against better teams. So. Um, one of the really bright spots, though, looking at this game from like a macro perspective is outside of garbage time, they only allowed 232 yards of offense. And it was, I think, just over 100 yards at the half. Um, the Oregon defense was able to really just kind of pack it in and sit on these guys. There was a lot of really nice plays made in coverage by a multitude of defenders. Um, Bennett Williams continues to be probably the most consistently awesome player on the defense. Um, Gonzo was great in coverage. Like Bridges was basically silent this entire game. I mean, the only explosive passing play that that Stanford Stanford had two explosive passing plays. Uh, one was a wheel route to Philkins out of the out of the backfield where he beat No to the corner, and then the absolute rail shot that he threw to Higgins over the middle that was honestly defended really well, and the ball was put in the only spot it could be. So. I'm really pleased with this performance by our defense, and I think that it's a a sign of continued growth and and development on that side of the ball. Yeah, I I definitely think it was probably our best defensive performance of the year. You know, obviously a combination of, you know, the opponent 
um, you know, being limited in certain ways, but also the matchups benefiting Oregon. But I also think there was real improvement at a lot of places as well. I thought, I thought Triquez played a really good game in coverage. He had some nice stops. He, he continues to defend the screen game and and the outside run game pretty well. I, you know, you mentioned Bennett. I think um, to me Noah looked more active and energetic and and you know and and kind of all over the place that he then he's looked all season. And I think some of that's probably him getting closer, you know, back to full strength. Yeah. The pass rush too. Like the pass rush was much better in this game than it's been this season. Now part of that is a symptom of playing Stanford, especially down their top two tackles, just like they were last week and they were down one against USC. Um they've been giving up a lot of pressures and a lot of sacks, but besides the actual statistical outcomes, I think the most impressive piece of, of the defense's like growth here is that we're executing our stunts better. Like the first sack of the game on that in the first drive um, by Brandon Dorless was just Oregon actually starting to get the timing down. The blitzes are starting to look cleaner. Um, and that is an Oregon versus Oregon thing. That's not something that Stanford's incompetence allowed. It's something that um, is showing up from additional reps in the system and guys becoming more comfortable. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned earlier the middle eight, and I want to touch on that. You know, well, first of all, let me start by saying in 99% of football games, defer is all is the correct choice, and I'll fight anyone on that one. Outside of a, a, a really unique matchup or a weather situation, you should always defer if you win the toss. Um, but I'll put, putting that aside, Oregon has actually, I think, uh, done very well. I think they've deferred. I think they've won most of the tosses, and I think they've got the second half kickoff four out of five games this year so far, if I'm if my memory serves. And I think they've converted a to the, the you know kind of the the last score, first score opportunity in three games, which is is really key. And in this game, they actually, in my opinion, you know, actually even got a bonus one. You know, I remember that you know the Ducks were up, the Ducks were up seventeen to three at the time, and and Stanford had the ball with got the ball with four minutes to go in the first half. And I thought, okay, if we can force another three and out here, we got time to go down and score, and then we're going to get the second half kickoff and have a shot to score again. And we actually got two scores in that four minutes because we got the quick turnover, which turned into a quick touchdown. Then we got the three and out on the next drive, and then we were able to drive 68 yards and get the touchdown at the half. So it was it was like even better than you could hope for to get 21 points, you know, in that in that back to back to back. Actually, we didn't because we didn't convert after the half. So I, my bad. But we set it up. So we should have or could have. And then uh, we, of course, we, we started the third quarter with two three and outs. Um, which was well, which was no, a disappointing. Five a five and a five and out and a six and out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because of penalties, though, it was just like abominable drives from like a, a couple of different perspectives. But you're 100 percent right, and I think that a, first of all, managing timeouts correctly and having all three timeouts going into the last five minutes or so of the second quarter is a, is a nice change. Um, but also like the aggressive use of said timeouts and the time management and us applying pre- like we were o- we were only up 17 to 3 and yet we were applying so much pressure to Stanford by the way that we were approaching those last couple possessions of the half that you would have thought that we were up i mean we were up multiple scores in addition to that um also like the tunnel screen to Chase Coda on the last play of the first quarter like that was that was like, a lot at any point in the last four years, Oregon just waits for the clock to 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 run out, goes to the sideline. Oregon at least goes out, gets into a formation, makes it look like we're going to let the quarter run out, and then we get a really cheeky touchdown out of a, out of a coaching like kind of we talked about multiple times this season. The coaches winning in the margins, like us getting a playoff when Stanford isn't really quite set and ready because they think that we're just taking this thing to the end of the quarter. And we get a we get a forty six yard touchdown. That's a really explosive play, and kind of starts getting this snowball rolling downhill. Yeah, for sure. I I don't know if I want to talk talk too much about the penalties. I I mean I, I did go back and rewatch the game, and I specifically kind of looked at at calls and no calls, and and you know I think there's certainly some some coaching or some some officiating bizarreness in that game uh you know i think there was a the uh, one the one holding call on sala early in the game was called from a referee who was literally 60 yards down the field uh which i've 
I don't know that I've ever seen before. Um, you know, and then I think the horse collar was was called similarly from an official who was quite a ways away, and it, it certainly wasn't a horse collar tackle by by any definition of the rules. But but for the most part, I mean, a lot of those other penalties were legit. I mean, you know, Oregon's got to be more disciplined. We've had a snap infraction, I believe, in every single game this year. Um, we've had we had two false starts early in this game at home that killed. You know, that that certainly hurt, you know, the ability to convert drives into points. Um, you know, we had we had the other holding call, which well, I won't speak about that one, <laughs> but that killed a drive. You know, we had the, the illegal, might, uh, illegal man downfield that took a touchdown off the board, and the guy was clearly seven yards downfield. It was a good call. Yeah, but, um, but the problem with that call is that the ball was caught behind the line of scrimmage on that play. It's a screen. They're allowed to be downfield. Yeah, I don't know. He, he caught it at the line of scrimmage. No, I want like I I will fight anybody on this. He he caught the ball at the line of scrimmage. I'm gonna go look he, at it again because it's the same play that Coda scored on. It's the exact same play, and it's certainly one where you see every team runs that play, and every team runs that play with linemen going down the field, and it's it's never called right. It, it, it you know you nearly never called right, and and it's what what are you like. That was kind of bizarre to see it called in that scenario, and and you know I thought, I thought the the you know the fighting one was interesting to me. I, I don't, I'm not saying he didn't deserve a penalty, but I don't know how that's not like a penalty on both teams. You know, there was a lot of action going on in there. I mean, it, you have a every other. Player... Sorry, yeah, Doug, I don't mean to interrupt. Yeah, he threw yeah. the helmet 25 yards down the field. Like, how is that not a penalty? Yeah, and every time I've, you've ever seen a scrum like that, like in any game, in any conference, what the result of it is either nobody gets called for anything or both team gets called, you know, somebody on both sides gets called and they offset and, you know, and everyone gets told to, you know, knock it off. I, that was, it was just bizarre. And and then, you know, go to the, the Hudson, the Hudson throwing the ball at the Stanford guy. And I watched that one back. And I think that was just a ref, like totally misreading a situation. You, you watch, he catches the punt on the sideline he looks to a ref. He's going to toss it to a ref. The ref's not looking at him. Then he looks to another ref. That ref's not looking at him. He doesn't know what to do with the ball. And he finally kind of just like underhand lobs it in the general direction of the line of scrimmage. And there happens to be a Stanford guy, you know, walking near that area. It doesn't The ball doesn't even really hit him. And and the ref comes running in and, and you know, I, I think thought he was throwing the ball at the Stanford player. It, but, it, I mean, you no, know, when you look at that, there's like, if you're throwing a ball at a player, you're, you're not just going to like throw this underhand like lobby thing. <laughs> it's, I think it was just a misunderstanding. Uh, but again, 15 yards, right? So, I mean, the players have to be smarter to not put themselves in those situations. But I also, it was it was a very poorly officiated game, in my opinion, from even from just a mechanic standpoint. Like the number of of penalties that were called from an official that was so far away from the play in question is was mind-boggling yeah no and like the the horse collar on stevens like i he never even got close to grabbing the horse collar like it was i i don't know i i just i was almost getting frustrated even with penalty flags that were getting thrown on, on stanford because they're just completely ruining the flow of the game like it was impossible for either team to really get in any kind of rhythm or develop any kind of momentum just because of the officials interjecting themselves into the game and now on or on the Oregon side, that's no excuse. You have to you have to clean up some of the execution problems, like the especially the dead ball fouls and and the and the man downfield stuff. Some of that's on the quarterback. Like the quarterback needs to understand that those guys don't know it's a pass play and the ball needs to get out fast. Um, but I also think it's just we're, it's the worst officiated conference in football, and it's just it's an embarrassment. And, yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, Stanford have had only five penalties, but that's a lot too, right? In a normal game, five penalties is a, a pretty, you know, a, a above average number, especially for Stanford, who is consistently one of the least penalized teams in the league. And I don't remember any of theirs being egregiously bad, but I think the game flow issue is is the bigger thing, right? It, it's hard for the team, you know, either team to get into the flow of a game. It's um, it, it's, and then I think it also creates a lot of chippiness, right? Because these players are getting so frustrated. And so in some way, the, the, the chippiness and the feistiness that ends up in a game like that is actually created by the officiating being so, inserting themselves into the game so heavily. Yeah, no, I agree. And I just, like, especially on pass interference stuff, like they just, 
it's so over officiated in the Pac-12. You can't play with any like any physicality at all almost anymore. And it's like even even if you're playing it technically the way it's supposed to be and the way that it's actually taught to be played as a corner, the odds that just a bad throw are gonna and then Pac-12 officials just being over litigious is gonna get you into a penalty is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I don't want to belabor that stuff too much, but um Let's talk a little bit about the, you know, the defense again. You know, like you said, they they held Stanford to, it was a 332 yards total, but as you said, a hundred of those were in the extended garbage time. Um, really bottled up, I thought, their running game and their passing game. You know, they just got to to McKee. You know, can, you know, I think they were credited with three sacks, but he had I don't know ten throwaways. Or I mean, it was it was incredible how how much heat they were getting on him, and, and it really made him uncomfortable back there. All without DJ Johnson available for the first half, too. I mean, he's the third highest sack. He's the third sack. Or I guess the third highest guy in sacks. I don't know. English is hard. Um, in the entire conference right now, he got one sack in the second half. But without him available in the first half, there was just copious amounts of pressure on on him, on uh, McKee. And they were doing a really good job of keeping the running game bottled up. Um, and frankly, like Oregon never left the too high shell like pretty much the entire game. There was a few times where they rolled some coverage and brought some pressure, but largely Oregon was playing the run with five or six guys against five or six, and we were winning, um, which is kind of what you would hope to be able to do with the size and the talent we have in the front seven. And it's good to see that manifesting in conference play because that's going to be really important for us going forward. Uh, it's only going to help our pass defense. Yeah, for sure. I thought uh, it deserves mentioning Brandon Doros had a really, really good game too, and we didn't call him out yet. So I, I thought he was really good against both the run and 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 the pass too. I think he got at least a sack. He had two sacks and three tackles for loss. So yeah, he had a great game. Um, five total tackles. So every every tackle he made solo was behind the line of scrimmage. Um, and it's just it's impressive to see him kind of coming into his own. Um, he's being really flexible, kind of. With how with how multiple the Oregon front is playing three and four down, depending on situation and personnel grouping, like he's he's been excellent against the run. He's been really really dangerous against the pass. He's I think he's becoming more comfortable. Like we like we mentioned earlier, him and Casey Rogers combined on a few really cleanly executed stunts that created substantial pressure and either forced throwaways or resulted in sacks. So um, really really pleased with the way that Doros is playing. Um, the rotation of guys along the front, like we're just. Especially on the interior, whether it's Riley or Tamani or Rogers or Ware Hudson, like we're just really not getting moved off the spot. We're doing a really good job bowing our necks um, in the run game, keeping teams behind the chains. Uh, and then the only problem I see for us defensively is we're still not as efficient on th- in third down situations as you would hope to see. Um, Stanford, Stan. I just lost it. It was um, five for 16. So that was definitely one of our better games in that department. Better, but in the first half specifically, there was a few that we let convert that were third and longer situations. I remember one in particular, it was a slant on their, their first touchdown drive um, that like was kind of a dagger. Like We get off the field there, we can really put them away even earlier than we did. So um, can look for continued improvement, but I it's really hard to complain. And, like for as much heat as Triquez Bridges has caught from Oregon fans, he continues to play better every week. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the going back on their third downs on their field goal drive in the first, which is their only points of the first half, they converted a third and eight. Um, so that was probably you know yeah, one where you like to see back. And yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, that yeah, I was just saying that that's the one I was talking about. I forgot that it was a field goal, not a touchdown that they ended that drive with, which again is like. Really good job of us in the red zone specifically. When the field condenses, it should get easier to play defense, and we continue to play good red zone defense. Yeah, I thought I thought we were really good that that drive in particular. They had a first and goal at the four, and and they did not. They gained one. No, actually, they lost a yard. <laughs> they lost a yard, and then uh, that we forced them into a field goal. So that was a great uh, great way to bow up. And I think we had a fourth down stop in this game as well. That was impressive. So but you like to see that in short yardage. That was an area where last year the defense, like if there was ever a short yardage play last year, whether it was for a first down or a touchdown, it was an automatic conversion for the other team last year. Like we didn't even have a goal line package. We were playing our base defense on fourth and one every every time last year. Yeah, we we did. And 
Like I, there was the, I think, I think this is the fourth down you're play. You're talking about in the first half, they tried to run the quarterback sneak with McKee McGee. And we just completely stacked it up. No chance. The guys on the edge did a good job of coming around and pulling him backwards. It's a big key in those situations. Like, Fundamentally, we played it well. The other thing I'm noticing defensively is when teams try to play um, and, and run run some kind of wide play or, or misdirection play, our guys' eye discipline on the edge is so much better than it was in past weeks and past seasons. We're just we're widening with it. We're keeping our, our integrity to our lanes and our assignments, and really because of that, we're we're keeping a lot of things in front of us, um, which would have been explosive plays in years past. Yeah, one of the things I really noticed last night, and I, I think it's been true all season, but I really it really struck me last night too was both the corners, the corners. I mean, on both uh, like screens as well as like swing passes out of the backfield, they're maintaining the sideline leverage and they're forcing that guy, you know, inside of them where they've got help, and they and they're or they're making the tackle right, or sometimes both right. They're but they're maintaining that outside leverage, not letting the guy get the corner, forcing him inside, and then oftentimes also cleaning it up. Yeah, and tackling is improving. There's still some missed stuff. Um, there was a misdirection play sometime in the third quarter. I can't remember exact, exactly the situation or who missed the tackle, but we allowed a play that would have been probably a six-yard loss to turn into like a 12-yard gain in a first down. And we were in the right spot. Like, they read it right. They stayed disciplined. We just got to finish. And so continuing to improve on tackling as this season goes along, and it's going to be something that improves through recruiting and, and, and like multiple season development as well because we were a really poor tackling team last year. And while we've improved a lot, there's still substantial room for growth. Yeah, I think this, this defense is going to continue to improve throughout the season, but certainly in the years in, into the years ahead as well, being you know first year in the system and everything. So um, any other thoughts on this game? No, it was just the last thing I'll say is getting into garbage time is such a blessing, like getting to see young guys. I mean, the last two touchdown drives um, for, for Stanford in the fourth quarter, it was basically our freshman team out there. Like you had Keanu Williams and Ben Robertson. You had Harrison Taggart making making an appearance. Um, Elijah Winston getting getting some run. Lawrence and Manning out there at corner. Um, Kamari Terrell getting a lot of valuable reps and actually looking really, really good in coverage. So they're like those reps are so invaluable. And like, as we, as we continue to move forward, if we can continue to win and put teams away, um, getting those valuable reps to those guys is going to pay massive dividends as the season goes on. And we start to have to test our depth with, with injuries. Um, and also uh, in, in future seasons, when guys have to step up into roles, it won't be their first time seeing it live. Yeah, for sure. It was certainly a good Oregon Ducks win against a team that's quite overmatched. I mean, Stanford has the last Stanford win against a non-FCS team was was unfortunately exactly 365 days ago, and it was against Oregon. Um, but certainly, they they had no chance in this game. I, I'm going to be really interested to see are they going to be able to get any wins? They don't play Colorado this year. I mean, what's the next win on their schedule? They're just they're just really an overmatched football team right now. Yeah, Arizona State's their best shot, and I think they might be able to get it because offensively, I, I don't know. I still think that Stanford is going to be able to do some things offensively. Assuming that they get both their tackles back at some point this season from injury, I think that'll be a really big help. Uh, hopefully the interior guy that they lost early in the game that was carted off uh, gets healthy and is able to come back for them. And, but the slow mesh, I I just think it's, it's such a bad situation system and scheme to be running when you lack offensive line depth and you have such an immobile player at quarterback and you don't have really good speed at receiver because it takes so long to develop and you're just sitting there um and it's not as quick and decisive of a read they they kept spewing this fact on the broadcast that when given a clean pocket uh mckee is graded out as the best passer in the country through pff but you're only as good as your ability to to reset your platform and to create opportunities for yourself to deliver the ball. If the offensive line can't do it and McKee can't do it for himself, he's just going to be getting hit a lot. I mean, that's just the reality for them. So it's going to take multiple years for them to get this roster back to where it should be. I don't know if if they're going to give David Shaw the opportunity to do it. I think they will. He's a Stanford guy. I think that the Stanford administration realizes that the kind of the self-sanctioning um, during the first couple of years of the of the early signing period where they weren't getting guys admitted into school fast enough um, and they weren't prioritizing av- uh, prospective student-athletes, 
really, really killed the talent on this team. And so it's going to take time for them to get it right. Um, but it, assuming that they can, it's I think it's fixable, but it's going to be a couple years still. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, let's move on to some of the other games that we have uh, we have covered. Or we picked this week as well as some other games from around the country. Um, I'm just going to go kind of down the top 25, and um, I think there were some interesting games there. I'll, I won't touch on them all, but, um, you know, Georgia, Georgia, of course, you know, went to Missouri, really turned the ball over a couple times early, spotted Missouri lead. Missouri's defense, I think, you know, played pretty well, but, you know, Georgia ended up winning 26-22 in a game that was, you know, closer on the scoreboard than than the game stats would indicate. Um, but, you know, they got a little bit of scare, but they, they hung on and won, and, of course, they fell back out of first place in the AP today due to it. Yeah, I that game... You just always kind of had that feeling, especially if you were looking at the box score. It was like the George is out gaining them by 200 yards, and eventually they were going to turn it on and start scoring touchdowns. And Missouri's only chance was to convert those opportunities that were given to them by Georgia into touchdowns. And unfortunately, they settled for field goals in multiple situations, and it just made it too easy for for Georgia once they started executing to climb back into the game. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Alabama uh, played to number 20 Arkansas on the road, and Bryce Young left the game with an injury, but Alabama rolled pretty heavily 49-26 win, and they moved up to number one. Yeah, Jalen Mil- Milrow kind of showed off his skill set. Um, not the passer that, that Bryce Young is, but a super explosive runner. And uh, between him and Jameer Gibbs, the running game just exploded once Bryce Young left the game. And they just started get, just ripping off long runs back to back to back to back. And they seem to have some young, um, more speedy receivers step up into more prominent roles. We'll see if that can continue against better competition. You got to remember that Arkansas's secondary has just been absolutely horrible this year. Although Oregon fans will remember Miles Slusher. Um, he's now back in the lineup for Arkansas and playing really, really well at corner. So um, that's good news for Arkansas. Unfortunately, some of their other more prominent defensive backs are out for the season with injuries. Yeah, and that was a game that we had we had on our picks this week, and I believe we both got that one right. We both picked Bama to cover, so um, chalk one up there for each of us. Yeah, what was our, what was my record this week, Doug? Well, we're going to get to that QB. <laughs> that patience. What's it might have been game? better than last week. How about that? All right, fair enough. Um. Yeah, so Ohio State, many think they might be the best team in the country. 49-10 win at home over Rutgers. Obviously not challenged at all in that game. Uh, Ohio State rolled. Did you see the, the almost fight between Shiano and Ryan Day during that game? I did not, but I assume it was over the Ryan Day fake punt up 40 points or something. Yeah, so it was interesting. So there was the a situation where I'm pretty sure the Ohio state punter just went rogue and just ran because there was no one there and basically got like 30 yards and converted a fourth down when they were up by 50 points or whatever. Um, but like all of a sudden, like there's a big hit laid out of bounds by Crookshank, former Wisconsin Badger who transferred that he's a returner for them. Um, and the flag comes out and then all of a sudden, like Greg Shiano is on the Ohio state sideline, just absolutely unloading and being held back from going after Ryan Day, not happy at all. There was a video after the game uh, where you could see Ryan Day apologizing to Greg Schiano. Um, but yeah, just uh, a little bit of drama in a game that offered absolutely nothing in terms of valuable entertainment. Um, well, we'll move to another game that offered, in my opinion, absolutely nothing of valuable entertainment, which was number four Michigan rolling over Iowa 27 to 14 in the big tenniest of Big Ten games. The thing was is that this game wasn't even as close as the score makes no. it sound. No, not at all. Mi- Michigan was up 20-0. to zero at I don't remember what point, but in the third quarter. Um, and at that point, the game was... I mean, the game was out of reach when it was 7-0. to zero. Uh, But I- Iowa kind of opened it up, I guess you could say. I mean, they had 260 yards of offense for the first time this season, so that was cool, I guess. But... Yeah, I mean, Iowa's horrible. The only question, and I guess a little bit concerned for, for Michigan, is the passing game wasn't really clicking for them. It just looked a little clunky. Uh, but it's all for however horrible Iowa's offense is, their defense is very, very competent and talented. So uh, 
keep that in mind when, when evaluating Michigan on this performance. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, uh, another game we did pick, so this was a, a top 10 matchup. Clemson, number five Clemson beats uh, number 10, or former number 10, uh, North Carolina State, 30 to 20 at home. That was a game we also picked. We both picked Clemson to cover the six and a half point spread, and they did, so we both got that one. Yeah, seeing DJU start to play well, like that's good. He's not he's not the elite like five star all world next Trevor Lawrence or Deshaun Watson that maybe some of us, I mean, shoot myself included, projected him to be. Um, but he is starting to play like a very good college quarterback, and that's that's what you want to see if you're Clemson. They were so bad offensively last year. Now they're now they're a fully dimensional team with one of the truly elite defenses in college football, even even having to play some young guys at corner. Um, I got another name that Oregon fans might remember from last year. Corner For true freshman corner, Toriano Pride made some big plays in this game in the second half. All right, we'll move on to another game that featured two top 15 teams, which were are both still two top 15 teams. Um, and they're both teams that I think neither are top 15 teams personally. Um, but number four, former number fourteen Ole Miss wins at home, twenty-two to nineteen over former number seven Kentucky, and then they basically flip flopped in the in the rankings, get plus or minus a spot or two. Twenty-two nineteen Ole Miss win at home. Ole Miss looked good. They ran the ball really effectively. I don't think Kentucky's a top twenty-five team, let alone a top fifteen team. I think that they're getting way too much credit for a Florida win early in the season. And this is kind of what happens in the AP poll with SEC teams is teams get overvalued because of wins in, in, in conference games, and then they lose to another conference team. And so that team gets overvalued and the self-fulfilling prophecy of a bunch of SEC teams being way overvalued in the AP poll uh, manifests over the course of a season. And, and so uh, like A&M and Arkansas, I think both fell out this year, this week. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, so that's that's a positive step in the right direction because neither one of those teams is actually very good. Although well, Arkansas is still getting votes. Yeah, I mean, Arkansas. I shouldn't say Arkansas isn't any good because they are a good good football team. They just they they're missing too much in the secondary. Um, but Mississippi State not being in the top twenty five is is interesting because they're the one team that I think the polls are really undervaluing. I know that they lost. They came in. They're in like twenty three now. Yeah, I know they lost to LSU. LSU, I think, came into the polls too at twenty-five this week. Yes, um, but yeah. So I, I just if take, I think if you take two SEC teams out, you have to bring two new ones in. That's the rule, at QB. Yeah, because whoever beats the formerly ranked SEC team is now a ranked SEC team. Yes, and and so it continues on down the river. That's the way it works. Uh, the way the world works. (laughs) That was a game we picked as well. I had Ole Miss covering. You had Kentucky. uh, So you're going to take the victory on that one because Ole Miss won but did not cover the six and a half points. So you're one up on Heartbreaking end for uh, Will Levis. Just took a sack in a really bad situation and kind of blew the game for Kentucky. But um, they're, they're competent enough to keep the game close. Um, another, another good matchup in the big 12 that we also picked. So number nine, Oklahoma state went on the road to Baylor and pulled off the victory 36, 25. This was also a game we picked. It was, uh, Baylor was favored by two and a half. Um, I took, or you took Baylor. I took Oklahoma state. So I got, I got back at you on that one. Yeah. Um, the Big 12 is going to cannibalize itself this year. Like, I don't know that I feel particularly comfortable betting on this league at all going forward because I think there's about seven teams that are all really, they're all like, I wouldn't say they're all really good or elite, but they're all good football teams that are all capable of beating each other. And so there, there is going to be a lot of just two and three loss conference teams in the Big, in the big 12 this year. Yeah. Uh, here's an interesting stat for you. Um, Oklahoma is tied for last in the Big 12, and Texas is tied for, uh, you know, like ninth. So <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. It is. It's it's a bunch of teams. I, I think there's a bunch of pretty good football teams in that conference. I don't think there's any, like, terrible teams, but I don't think there's any elite teams either, and I, I think you're right. I think there's going to be a big round robin. They're all going to beat each other up, and, and the conference champ might have three losses. 
three conference losses even we'll see yeah it's gonna be crazy there's like just i'm sure that you probably have the tcu oklahoma game on the docket to talk about of course let's just get to that one all right let's do it so TCU absolutely obliterates Oklahoma. I mean, 730 yards of offense, 400 of it came in the first half, ran the ball at will, threw the ball at will. Brad Venable's defense had no chance in hell of ever stopping them. Um, ironic because it was Garrett Riley calling plays for TCU, the brother of former Oklahoma head coach uh, Lincoln Riley, who's now at USC. But just insane offensive performance by TCU just completely took Oklahoma apart. Um, and I TCU is kind of looking like one of those teams that is in that muddle of good teams that can win any week. Um, that's going to help cannibalize that conference this year. Yeah. I, I mean, Oklahoma only had one turnover. I, I, you know, it, it's very similar to their loss to Kansas state last week. I mean, they just got beat. I mean, they just got beat by a team that was way better than them. Uh, and, you know, the, the, TCU put up 27 points in the first quarter. Yeah, Dylan Dylan Gabriel got hurt in this game. I hope he's okay. I haven't seen anything on it. Um, kind of a scary situation. He was hit while sliding and was down for a while. But it, that's not why this game was the way it was. This game was already well over by the time that that injury took place. Um TCU just at no point was threatened of getting stopped. I think some of the transfers out last year for Oklahoma really gutted that roster. Um, just just a tough situation for a first-year coach to be in. Now he's got to make sure he can convince the recruits to stay in the class, uh, despite the fact that they're probably going to be like a 7-5 and five football team. Yeah, I forgot to mention earlier that we had picked the the Michigan game. We both took Michigan to cover, which they they bar- they did. It, it was a ten and a half point spread. They covered by they won by thirteen. So, but again, a game was not as close as as the final score indicated. There, um, two more games we did pick: Wake Forest, uh, Florida State, which uh, Wake went on the road to Florida State and won thirty one twenty one. They beat Florida State. Both teams are now four and one. Um, again, I think these are two of the better teams in the ACC. I think Wake Forest is a better team than Florida State. I think the better team won, um, yeah, but it was a it was a pretty competitive game. Yeah, good game. Good to see Jordan Travis out there. I think there's just too many injuries for Florida State right now piling up. With, um, but the the really cool thing about this is, I think this made me even more confident about the fact that Clemson is legitimately a top five team, and their offense is pretty good because. Clemson wins a shootout against Wake Forest last year, uh, manages to win a game against North uh, NC State this week that I'm sure we'll be getting to, or we we, we covered as well. Um, but I think it just speaks that, I think it's kind of a renaissance here in both the ACC and the Pac-12 from the sense that, and I guess the Big 12 too, there's just a lot of competence. Um, and that hasn't been the case in years past, especially in the ACC, where last year Wake Forest kind of rose up and NC State was solid, but it was just kind of the Clemson show for a long time. And now you have some teams that are putting out some pretty good performances. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, um, I, I think the ACC has been top to bottom, probably the worst conference for most of the last five years. But yeah, this year, all of a sudden that's changing quite a bit. And, and the big 12 we talked about already as well. Um, one more game that we picked, uh, Texas tech, at Kansas State, both teams coming off of really big wins last week. Uh, Tech over Texas, Kansas State over Oklahoma, and Kansas State won at home, thirty-seven twenty-eight to go to four and one. Moved up in the rankings quite a few spots, and um, you won that game as well. I had I had Tech covering, and they didn't. So, yeah, I didn't catch there. a ton of this game, but I was looking at the box score um, mm-hmm. as it was going on, and. Uh, Adrian Martinez just continues to run the ball like a man possessed. I mean, he's just ripping off chunk plays. Um, and with him and Deuce Robinson, um, or not Deuce Robinson, Deuce Vaughn, uh, the running back, there's just there's a lot of explosiveness in that offense and some good players on defense. So, And, I, and here's the deal. I think Tech is still going to beat some teams. Yeah, I agree. I, again, I think, the, I think that – I think there's – there's 12 teams in that conference, and most of them can beat any of the other 12 on any given Saturday. So I'm looking forward to watching the Big 12 play out over the next 10 weeks or yeah. eight weeks or however many there are left. We need to be careful because we're going to bump their ratings. We might. We might. 
Um, I'm tracking those. I gotta go. I gotta put out an update. Maybe I'll do that during the bye week. Um, let's move on to the Pac-12. Um, you obviously picked Oregon to cover. I picked Stanford to get a backdoor, you know, backdoor cover, and they almost made it, but fell one point short. So you're gonna take me in that one. It was a 17 point spread. Oregon won by 18. Um, obviously we've talked about that game at length already. So I'll move on to USC Arizona State. This one was surprisingly close for for most people i think for a while i think uh, usc put it away in the second half 142 to 25 did not cover the 26 and a half point spread so we both took the l on that one uh what do you think about what do you think about the trojans and that game i think they're a team that's like very capable of playing down to their opponent and i think that's kind of what happened here but i also think it's just further proof that this usc defense isn't very good I mean, not to use the transitive property, but just looking at the way that Oregon was able to sit on the Stanford offense in meaningful time um, and the way that Stanford just marched the ball up and down the field on USC, I think that's another data point that can be used here. But I'm also noticing a trend where Caleb Williams, like on schedule in the pocket, if the first read is not there, isn't nearly as, as efficient as Caleb Williams improvising, escaping the pocket um, and finding guys after he's used his legs a little bit. Uh, something to monitor going forward. I think I think Oregon State might have unco- uncovered something with a lot of zone coverage and, and kind of making him actually read the defense and get through his progressions. Um, I, I firmly believe that Utah is going to beat USC here in a couple weeks. Yeah, I I will get to our power rankings uh, later in this episode, so stay tuned for that. But I, I kind of agree with you. I was kind of thinking, oh, man, I don't know. USC might take that one. But I, I think Utah does look, just look like a little more of a complete team right now. So I, I will obviously be a great game. I'll be watching that one. Uh, speaking of Utah, big home victory over Oregon State, 42-16. This was a game where Oregon State actually was outplaying Utah early in this game. Um, outside of the most important position on the field, their absolutely atrocious quarterback who who um, turned the ball over again. He, he, I remember he had four interceptions against USC last week. He had two interceptions in the first three possessions of this game um, gave Utah 14 free points and then ended up getting benched. And then Oregon state just got, just got blown out, you know, in the second half of this game. But uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, Utah just kind of crock potted them, just slow cooked them just over time, beat them down. And then in the second half exploded and just took the game away. Clark Phillips with a three interception performance by himself. Uh, including one which was returned for a touchdown. Chance Nolan gets benched early in this game for Gilbranson. Gilbranson comes in and throws another two picks. So I think that Oregon State has a pretty serious quarterback problem. Um, and it's, like as you said, when we get to our power rankings, it's going to cause them to move down pretty substantially for me. Yeah, I I mean, I think their defense, their defense got, you know, ended up getting gashed, you know, in this game. But I think their offense really, set them up to fail, you know, throughout most of this game. And I thought the running game showed a little bit of life in this game, you know, when it was still competitive, which was something we hadn't seen out of them that yet this year. And I think their defense is pretty decent, but their quarterback play is so atrocious that, I mean, they're just not going to be able to win games against, you know, even average football teams if they are throwing four picks a game. Uh, you just can't you can't do that they got to find it's crazy because Jonathan Smith is a good offensive mind he's had good quarterback play you know throughout his career but he's just not been able to find the guy to run that offense for him and it's killing him yeah especially when you consider that one of the interceptions was in the end zone like in a, in a, in a drive early like late in the third quarter when they're really down by it's a two-score game but they're down by nine um, and they're going in to score and then they have a pick six and it's just uh, I don't know, a lot of missed opportunities. I think Oregon State's actually a, a better football team, but I think that the quarterback play is going to be the bane of their existence throughout the rest of the season. Yeah, no, exactly. You know, we often say, and I think we said it a couple times today already, that, you know, the, the score wasn't, the score of a game, you know, the, the game wasn't as close as the score looked. And this is a game where actually, I think you could say the opposite. You know, the the, the game was probably closer than the final score. Um, But, you know, credit to Utah, they they took those takeaways too. So, and they, they did what they needed to do on offense, even without Keithy. Yeah. I'd say that I've this so far this season is the most impressed I've been with the Utah offensive line in a while. 
Um, so that'll be something to monitor as we move forward and, and they play some better fronts. Yeah, for sure. Um, next up, let's go down to the, the desert uh, where the Ducks will be going next weekend. Listen to our preview of that on Friday. Colorado traveled down to the desert to take on Arizona. No surprise here. Arizona won this game handily, 43-20, to 20, and, and Colorado fired their coach. Yeah, and uh, our rule that Colorado always gets covered on continues to stand. And in case anyone has missed the last multiple weeks of coverage, Colorado is not going to win a football game this year. Firing their, their coach is not fixing that problem. It is not. Uh, it is not there. They, that team needs multiple years, a lot of help. Um, I don't know what the solution is there. I don't know who they're going to hire. I don't know how they're going to fix it. it. It's a, it's a really sad state of affairs. Um, Cougars ducks opponent last week, stayed at home. Uh, the visiting Cal bears came in off their 48 point beatdown of Arizona the week before and managed to score nine points in the Palouse in a 28 to nine loss. Yeah, it's almost like what we predicted about their offense was true and that it was kind of a one-off performance. Jade not, is not Reggie Bush, um, and they are, they're pretty mortal offensively. Uh, the crazy thing about this game is they're winning 20-9 to nine with two turnovers to Cal's none. So turning the ball over twice, still being good enough to win and cover by multiple scores. Um, Washington State is a, is a pretty good football team. And we will... Maybe see them move up one or both of our power rankings as we unveil those here in a couple of minutes. Um, finally, the Friday night game. Um, I certainly enjoyed watching this immensely. Uh, Washington hits their first road trip of the season. Goes down to UCLA. Both teams 4-0 coming in. UCLA comes out of the game with a 40-32 victory. It was 40-16 uh, until uh, you know late in the game. Washington put a couple of touchdowns on the board to make it interesting. Uh, Penix throws two interceptions in this game, which were both pretty bad balls, honestly. Um, I thought UCLA, you know, Dorian Thompson Rob Robinson had his one of his patented, you know, three games a year where where he looks like an all conference, you know, quarterback and and really, you know, did UCLA ran the ball at will. I thought with Charbonnet, uh, DTR did some DTR things, and Penix turned the ball over a couple times, and and Washington's defense. Both of these defenses are bad, but Washington's defense is, I think, particularly bad in both phases. Yeah, I agree. I This game, I don't know. I'm disappointed in myself for picking the Huskies to cover this line. This should have been predictable. Chip Kelly was in his bag calling an excellent game offensively. UCLA was really able to get whatever they want, wanted, both running the ball and throwing the ball. Um, Jake Bobo looked like Randy Moss against this Washington Huskies secondary. Uh, the interior of the defensive line for Washington was getting reset on pretty much every play, every run. Zach Charbonnet was good after contact. I mean, everything was working for, for UCLA offensively. They didn't even punt until really this game was over and, and, and UCLA was trying to drain clock. Um, this game, again, the score, I don't think, in a lot of the same ways that the Michigan State-Washington score wasn't indicative of the, of the flow of the game and, and how much... Washington dominated UCLA or dominated Michigan State. Um, I don't think this score is at all reflective of how dominant UCLA was in this game. Dorian Thompson Robinson was awesome, electric. I mean, guy is breaking up his own passes when when defensive tackles are trying to catch batted balls, uh, making Husky defenders run into each other on the goal line, hurtling guys, um, making really really nice throws downfield. It this is. If, if UCLA could bottle this performance offensively, they're a legitimate conference title contender. Um, I, I think that the uh, Washington run game managed to make the UCLA front look a little bit more competent than it really is, especially down three their top three defensive tackles. Uh, but former Washington Husky Leatu Latu is uh, looking like a, like a pretty explosive pass rusher for the Huskies or for the for the Bruins. Um, and so, yeah, it's going to be an interesting, interesting uh, trend to watch. I think, I think we learned a lot about the was Washington defense this week. But the question is, is how many offenses left on their schedule have enough juice to actually really take advantage? Because I still think that Washington's passing game is explosive and dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think 
I think they're gonna they're they're probably gonna win nine games this year, and I I, I think a lot of that is the product. I mean, it's a product of two things: their offense, their their passing offense, particularly, and their schedule. Um, and I I think I said before the season that I could see a scenario where the Huskies are a better team in 2023, but actually win less games, just because of the schedule the schedule variances you know between this year and next year for them. They they drop Colorado. And I think one of the Arizona schools and they add Utah and USC next year. That's yeah. A significant difference. And also I think you're going to be having a Washington team down Michael Penix next year. And that might, we'll, we'll see what that looks like when the time comes, but I think that might be a problem um, because he's been extremely efficient. He's been able to make quick reads and, and distribute the ball to what I think is one of the better receiving groups in the PAC 12 um, this Washington D offense is still explosive and still scary, but if you can slow them down and you have an offense yourself, I think they're beatable. Yeah, and I think I think that UCLA USC game, you know, at the end of the year is is looking pretty interesting now because I do see that game, you know, maybe maybe playing out similarly to this one, two two teams that can score a lot of points if UCLA is clicking, and you know, you know, who makes a mistake, you know, who who turns the ball over might decide that one. So I'm looking forward to that one, you know, way down there in week 12 or 13 or whatever it is this year. Yeah, that's going to be a shootout, I think, because I don't know that either of these defenses are particularly great. I would probably assume UCLA's is a little bit better, um, but USC's has continued to be opportunistic, forcing a lot of turnovers, or if you want to call it forcing, <laughs> getting a lot of turnovers. Yeah. All right, so uh, totals for this week. I was 8-5 and five this week, which is a, a much-improved performance over my 3-8-1 and one, uh, disaster of a week ago. Uh, but QB, you were ten and three. Uh, you went ten and three this week, which was uh, again a big, per, big improvement for you on last week, and uh, that puts you three games up on me over the course of the season at, at this point. Just imagine, Doug, if we had stuck to our guns and picked against Washington, how good of a week this would have been for both of us. Yeah, I mean, I'll take eight and five. I think you win some money, you know, going eight and five every week. No, absolutely. I, I think we're again. I think we're starting to kind of dial in the conference a little bit. Um, again, disappointed that USC didn't cover, just given how much more talented than Arizona State they are, and the fact that it was at home. But I think we were on the right side of that, despite the fact that it didn't hit. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's power rankings time. You ready to do this? Indeed. All right. I will start with number twelve. No suspense here. It's Colorado. It will be Colorado till the end of the season. Yeah, they're the worst team in Power Five. So yeah, they're they're down there and they will stay down there. And sorry, Buff fans, but yeah, you guys aren't particularly great this year. Who you got at eleven? Arizona State. I still think Arizona. I think Arizona State is bound to fully send it in here in the next couple of weeks. Um, they did look a little bit better against USC. Uh, but I think a part of that is a product of USC's defense just not being very good at all. And I think that USC is is extremely overvalued by the AP hole, but just kind of generally overvalued nationally. I had Stanford at 11 last week. I saw nothing to move them up so that Stanford stays as my number 11. That's totally fair. only reason I have Stanford at 10 is because I think that Stanford is just better offensively than Arizona State is. I assume Arizona State is your, uh, I'm sorry, I assume Stanford then is your 10, you said. And then Arizona State is, of course, my number 10. So we just flip-flop on those two. At nine, I have Cal. Okay, so I've got Arizona. I didn't feel comfortable putting uh, Arizona or Cal below a team that they beat, like, as handily as they did, especially um, how recently it happened. So I've I've got Arizona down at number nine. They're improved. They hit their over on the two and a half win total. I don't know that they've got a whole lot of games left on the schedule that are going to be wins, uh, but offensively they're fun um, and, and they can cause some problems. Yeah, so I think we're flip-flopped on these two. I assume you have Cal at 8 and Arizona at 9. I have Arizona at 8, Cal at 9. Um, I know what you said about, about the winning thing. I just decided when we started this power rankings is that I'm going to be very recency biased with them and, and be volatile, volatile on purpose and kind of go with a combination of totality of the season as well as what did I see this week? And I just think in both of those things, I like Arizona a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. 
I, I could see that that perspective. I actually disagree, but um, indeed, I have Cal at eight um, for all the reasons mentioned. I, I think that they are competent enough to be dangerous, but um, offensively, they just they don't do enough to really threaten any of the top teams in this league. Yep, seven. Who you got? Oregon State. I I don't feel comfortable putting them above Wazoo, given the fact that this. They don't have any quarterback play that's consistent. They turn their quarterbacks are turnover machines. Um, I think that their front seven, while it plays hard and plays pretty disciplined, it can be blown off the ball by the better teams in the league, as shown by Utah last week. Um, so yeah, I got I got Oregon State there. I also have Oregon State at seven. We both had Oregon State at five last week, so we both dropped them down to seven this week. They're my the Beavers are my number seven team for all the reasons you mentioned. And more, and I like. There's no, there's no one in the top six that you can put them ahead of in my mind. So easy call. I think here we're going to diverge. You think so? I got Wazoo at six. I've got Washington at six. You go first. <laughs> um, I just I obviously UCLA beat Washington, so uh, you know I, I think I got to have the 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 Bruins ahead of Washington, and I just. I I was impressed by what Washington State did against Oregon. I was impressed by what they did against Cal. Obviously, they went to Camp Randall and won. And obviously, you know, Wisconsin's not the team that they have been, but it's still a, a pretty good road win and a place that's hard to win. I think their defense is playing pretty well against teams not named Oregon. Um, I I don't know. I just there's something about that team. I think they're. I just like their competitiveness. You know, I just I, I don't think they're going to be out of games. I think they're going to be in every game. I think they're hard nosed. I think they play like their coach. Um, I don't know. So I so and conversely, I think Washington is a very one dimensional team. I think they can pass. I don't think they can run particularly well. I don't think they defend the run well. I don't think they defend the pass well. I think they're a product of their schedule and. Um, and 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 a really really good passing offense, but they're too one dimensional for me. So I have them as my number six team. Okay, so this is why I have Wazoo at six and UW at five because the top five teams are all good enough offensively to beat the like kind of rabid, fast paced multiplicity of the of the Washington State defense. Like if if we were to pick who would win on a neutral field between Washington and Wazoo tomorrow, I would be picking Washington to win by probably more than one score. Uh, just Despite the fact that I don't trust the Washington defense really at all, I just think matchup-wise, Washington offensively just causes too many problems for this Washington State secondary. Um, and so I just think that the, the top five teams in the league have the top five offenses. And so... Uh, that that's kind of my reasoning. I, I as much as I love this Washington State defense, I love the way they play. Cameron Ward is not consistent enough. I don't think he's actually really all that great of a player, and I don't think that their offense gives enough to be better than any of the top five. I think that's fair. I mean, he if you watch his game, like he's getting everything off, you know, screen the screen game, the short pass game, right, and, and you know, getting guys and hoping they can break tackles and make some runs. So yeah, he's not particularly good throwing the ball down the field. I, I will agree with you there. So that's fine. We can be different on that. I, I do have Washington State as my number five. So again, we're just we're just flip-flopped on those two. Perfect. Yeah, so I got, I got UW at five. I mean, you kind of laid out all the reasons. I think that um, Washington is too one-dimensional to beat any of the four teams that I have above them right now. Uh, but their passing game is still dangerous enough, and Penix is playing at a high enough level. level um and that they have enough kind of talent sprinkled throughout the defense to cause problems for all the teams below them. So I think this is kind of like the line of delineation. Washington is, uh, or demarcation. Washington is kind of the team that I think is better than all the teams below them and worse than all the teams above them. Fair. I guess that's a completely natural way for power rankings work to work, where if you're five, the teams above you are better and below you are worse. But uh, in terms of, they're like the measuring stick, in my opinion. I have UCLA at four. I do too. I, I, I like what they did offensively against Washington. I, I need to see them perform at that kind of level more consistently. Uh, and I really, I don't think that Washington was equipped to do it, but I think that the better teams in this league, this, uh, whether it's USC, Oregon, or Utah, um, can take advantage of this front seven and run the ball. I agree with that completely. 
Um, we'll see if we diverge on number three. I think we might again. So I really struggled here. This is where I started to have a hard time. Um, I'm going to keep Oregon at three because of the Georgia loss for right now. Uh, but if, if USC puts out another performance like they had the last two weeks, they're going to be dropping down for me again. Uh, I think Oregon long-term has the most juice to squeeze in terms of upside. I think that Oregon has the most talent left to – To I, I just think it's the most complete roster. Uh, Utah, I think, being the, the other team that's kind of in the same league. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's where I, I have Oregon at three right now. Um, well, if they can win on the road at Arizona this week and go into the bye week, we'll we'll see. We'll reevaluate. But for right now, I got them at three. Yeah, I have USC at three. I think Oregon and Utah are just more complete teams uh, than USC. I think they, I, I just, I don't, you know, they've had two kind of underwhelming performances in a row, in my opinion, and that's that's enough to put them at third in my power rankings. Fair enough. So I've got USC at two. You've got Oregon at two, I'd assume, right? Correct. And so that means we both have Utah at one. Yeah, I don't think there's any reason to knock Utah out of one. I know, you know, we started this three weeks ago. I had USC I had USC at one the first week, Utah last week, and Utah again this week. Um, you know, I think they're playing pretty complete football uh, for the most part, more so than both Oregon and USC. And until until I see them, you know, really trip up or, you know, Oregon or USC really start just playing complete games on both sides of the football, then I, I just don't see, I don't see any reason to move Utah out of the one spot. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. I, I, I need to see um, Oregon perform with the same level of consistency as Utah before I, and, and, and frankly, I think that given the results of the last two games against Utah last season, I might need to see Oregon beat Utah to, to move them off the one spot. Yeah, I, I looked at that too, and I think you know, obviously, the Utah USC game is going to happen first, assuming chalk holds. Otherwise, you know, just kind of forecasting a little bit, the winner of that game is probably going to end up in the one spot. Oregon will be in the two spot, and and the loser of that game will be you know three or lower, and then and then you're right. Then you know it's okay. Well, then what happens with Utah Oregon? <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be really interesting to monitor. We'll we'll game it all out as we get deeper into conference play. Yeah, I love what when it gets down to you know four four games to go. It's probably usually when I start running all the scenarios for what does each team have to do to you know to make the to win. The, it used to be to win their division. Now it's to make the conference title game. So I'll, I'll start charting all that stuff out. Probably three four games left in the season. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like, wild this year too with tiebreakers and and the no divisions. Yeah, yeah, it, it. I think it's going to be the. I think it's really going to be between the top three that we have in our current power rankings, um, and it's really going to come down, in my opinion, to like whoever loses. Uh, well, I don't know. It, we could go really deep into this right now. I don't think it's appropriate at this time. I, I think the. I think the loser of Utah Oregon does not make it. Yeah, I agree. We'll leave it at that. Anything else for today's episode? Uh, no, I think that's it. All right. Well, make sure everyone you come back and listen to us Friday morning. We'll have the preview episode of the Arizona game. Uh, Ducks going down to the desert this weekend. Yeah, hopefully bringing back a different result than has been standard for Oregon over the last decade. Um, really poor performances on the road at both Arizona State and Arizona outside of the Vernon Adams miraculous win in 2015. So uh, hoping for some better performance. Looking forward to previewing that game with you. Absolutely. We'll see you then.